So we're here today to celebrate um, Dharma Day, the the day when the Buddha first started um, teaching the Dharma. And it's a day of celebration, a day of joy and happiness and so on. But unfortunately for me, and um, here I might get a little bit in need of a tissue, it's a day of sadness. Um, On the shrine here you'll see some photographs and um, I haven't seen this photograph for a while, but it's a photograph of a very, very good friend of mine um, called Sudarshan. And um, the other photograph of his, his wife, um, Bodhi Shaki, uh, Saki. Um, and the two of them um, were killed in a car accident just two, two days ago. Um, so I'm afraid the joy that I was feeling about giving this talk um, is blunted a little bit by the awareness of um, departure of some very good friends. Sudarshin is an Indian order member. He's been in the order for quite a long time. He first got involved in the, um, our movement in 1979. And um, he's been ordained for many, many years. And I've got to know him because we used to attend something called public preceptors meetings. And he was one of the first, he was the first, I think, um, um, Indian public preceptor. So I would get to meet Sudarshan every year, usually. And we would spend time together, a couple of weeks, in England. This year was my first visit to India. And um, I just remember Sudarshan and the hotel that I was staying in, demanding that I took a photograph of him and the other public preceptors and that we get someone else to take the photograph with me in it. So it's a very, um, it's a very wonderful time. Um, when I got, uh, the news came to me just in an email, and it takes a little while for you to sort of um, process that. And being a bloke, what blokes do usually is they just stick it into a compartment, shut the door, and get on with other emails. So I guess that's what I did. Um, and when I came in here today, I saw the photograph, and I think it just wasn't easy to keep the door closed much more. But I did find myself yesterday, when the sun came out between the showers, um, sitting in the garden, and just um, reflecting on life, because it's these moments when you really are brought up against certain realities in life. And um, my mind just naturally turned to the Buddha, to the Buddha and his teaching. I felt so grateful that I had a way of perspective, if you like, um, to look at life, to look at life and death, which I guess so many people just don't have. Um, There are quite a few stories in the early scriptures where the Buddha meets a monk, and the monk asks the Buddha some questions, and uh, the Buddha is very, very pleased with the monk's progress. And a little while later, other monks asked, what's happened to so-and-so? And And the Buddha said, oh, he got run down by a buffalo, for instance. And I couldn't help reflecting, this is a little bit like Sudarshan. Sudarshan lived just such a a spotless life, if you like. He was always positive. The the photograph says everything. He just had this wonderful, warm smile. Very quiet man. um, Very unargumentative. Sort of had to apologise if he wanted to make a point strongly. And um, 
he really practiced the Dharma and uh, I believe made a lot of progress in his life. In fact, I know he made a lot of progress. I've seen him over the years changing um, year by year, not just because he's growing older, more mature, but the strength of his spiritual practice. He's incredibly well known in India. It's difficult to convey here the, uh, the meaning of someone like Sudarshan dying in India. He's ordained lots of people. And people look up to him as one of the sort of pillars, one of the leaders of the movement. Um, and uh, it really is a great tra- tragedy for all the Indian Order members. I believe they had his cremation in a burning ghat in uh, um, Pune this afternoon, India time. So that would have been early morning, well, midday, something in English time. And um, I believe his children, he's got two sons in the States, came back over to visit. And throughout India, we've got many, many centres in India. It's difficult to keep track of where we have centres. They have, you have sometimes little centres in garages and on hallways. It's difficult to know how many centres are, but there are hundreds of them. And probably in all the major centres, they've been practising puja all afternoon for um, Sudarshan and Bodhisattva. Bodhisattva was just ordained this year. She'd been wanting to join the order for many years. And I just remember, sorry I have to share these with you, but it's the only one I'm going to get into this talk. Just remember how Sudarshan was so pleased to tell me now he had a spiritual community to live in. He had two order members living together. So he was very pleased about this. And uh, it made a big difference to his life having a partner who really supported the work that he was doing. Because he was away from home an um, incredible amount. He was always travelling over India, leading retreats, giving talks, doing programmes, and he would have got this support from, from his wife. So it really is a tragedy of um, enormous proportions um, for India. So, But this is what the Buddha teaches. He teaches that everything is impermanent. And um, this is in a way, the theme of the talk. Although, really, what I wanted to talk about today was um, great people. And in a funny way, it's befitting that we've got Sudarshan here on our shrine because he is truly a great person. I haven't written some notes about his life to tell you all the details of it, and I've got enough to get through with the other great people in history. But... um, we will be doing a puja afterwards, and during the course of that puja, I know it's, I know it's difficult for people that have, if you've never met anyone and you don't feel such a strong connection with them, it's not always easy to bear them um, in mind. But maybe you'd just like to think that the puja we're doing, you could just bear in mind these two people who've given an incredible amount to so many it's difficult describing the numbers in uh, in India. You give a talk in England, like here, in one of our biggest Buddhist centres, and you can all fit in the room. If this was India, um, I, mean, I think we would have um, video setups throughout the building, and people would be sitting more or less everywhere, um, usually men on one side, women on the other side for some reason, but that's how it is, just absolutely packed out with people. And Sudarshin would have touched these people's lives. Um, Probably hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people's lives in one way or another 
perhaps not directly, but indirectly would have been touched through the work of Sudarshan and his brothers in the Dharma. So when we do the puja, and I hope you will like to join us in remembering or just being aware or sending our metta to these people. The Buddha often is asked what happened to the monks when they got run down by buffaloes and so on. And very often in the scriptures he says, oh, they were reborn in, um, in a higher form of existence, in a heaven world where you only hear the Dharma, there's no suffering, where you will just go on to become a Buddha. And um, when I was reflecting on Sudarshan yesterday, I thought, this man's rebirth, and I'm a very traditional Buddhist, so I certainly believe that life doesn't end and it's just a black hole at death, that the one's consciousness continues. And I'm sure that Sudarshan's consciousness will find uh, an appropriate uh, birth again or a rebecoming in a situation that would be much better than the one he started this life in. Because he started this life in a family of Dalits, or what used to be called untouchables. And um, he progressed from that. And all I can wish for is that his future, wherever it is, is a happy one. So we've gone to India in a rather sad way. Um, But my talk begins in India. Hopefully it will begin in India and end in this room. Um, I asked to give this talk because um, a few weeks ago in May, the full moon of May, we celebrated the um, Wesak or Vesak celebration, um, Buddha Day, the day when the Buddha gained enlightenment. And uh, I told a little bit about that experience. Um, the Buddha, after a long journey, sat underneath a tree and had this amazing experience that completely and radically and totally transformed him. It's difficult even to know whether he was a human being after this experience. And our modern Western scientific mind would say, yes, he was an enlightened human being, but since we have absolutely no idea what enlightenment is, to talk about an enlightened being doesn't logically make sense because you can't know an enlightened being. So he looked like a human being. He had arms, legs, walked around, ate, talked to people, um, did all the things that human beings did. And he spent many weeks after his enlightenment just um, staying in Budgaya, which, well, in the grove of trees that has now become Budgaya. Um, there was nothing there then. And uh, he just absorbed this amazing experience that he had, just allowed it to soak into him. And it's said that he spent about seven weeks, I think, in this place. And he hardly met anyone at this time. There was a a chance meeting with a Brahmin who seemed to have been rather stuck up and proud and didn't want to really listen to the Buddha. And um, he went on his his way. And, but... Gradually, bit by bit, thoughts started to arise in the Buddha's mind, I guess, about, like, what am I going to do now? I've had this experience of enlightenment. Um, Am I going to keep it to myself, or am I going to give it to other people? And um, he couldn't really decide. He couldn't decide whether to do it or not. 
He had just spent um, about four years, I think, trying to gain this state of enlightenment. He practiced the most awful austerities, completely starved himself, practiced lots of meditation and uh, in other places. And he really um, struggled enormously to gain this state. And he suddenly thought, well, if it's been difficult for me, who else stands a chance, really? You know, it's going to be... Can I even explain it? Can I even describe, can even tell people how to get there? And one of the scriptures, it says, this is the Buddha reflecting. He, he was telling this story to monks later in his life. And it's um, according to the Sutta, it says, and this is the Buddha speaking, This Dharma that I have obtained is profound, hard to see, hard to understand, peaceful, sublime. Unattainable by mere reasoning, subtle, to be experienced by the wise. But this population delights in attachments, takes delight in attachments, rejoices in attachment. It is hard for such a population to see the truth, namely specific conditionality, dependent origination. And it is hard to see this truth, namely the stilling of the formations of the relinquishing of all acquisitions, the destruction of craving, dispassion, cessation, nirvana. If I were to teach the Dharma, others would not understand it, and that would be weary and troublesome to me. Thereupon, he sort of decided momentarily not to teach. There are a couple of things in there you may not understand. Specific conditionality, dependent origination. This is what he saw when he gained enlightenment, that all things arise in dependence upon conditions and causes. But then something happened. and um, But before that happened, he just uh, found himself saying something like, enough with teaching the Dharma that even I found hard to reach. For it will never be perceived by those who live in lust and hate. Those died in lust, wrapped in darkness, will never discern this obtuse dharma, which goes against the worldly stream, subtle, deep and difficult to see. I saw can empathise with the Buddha because um, I've been teaching people Buddhism for, I must be getting on for 30 I've been an order member for almost 35 years, and I think I started teaching more or less as soon as I got ordained. And um, sometimes it's very easy teaching people the Dharma, because you know, people are really interested, because it's all new. And uh, then you get people to go away with you on retreats, and they start practicing. And then they start hitting resistances. And one of the things you find if you're a retreat leader, uh, at least maybe it doesn't happen so much these days, but it certainly did for me, um, is you're trying to get people to go from where they are into another sort of form of being. And they don't want to go. They sort of do all sorts of things. Um, you say to people, let's have some silence so we can all be, you know, have time to absorb you know, what's going on for us. And at first, some people hate that. It's completely impossible in India to have silence. Uh, on the order con- on a, I was on a retreat in, in uh, March with Indians, not order members, but just ordinary Indian Buddhists. And, I, and uh, people were saying, the people in the dormitories 
can't sleep at night because they're talking. And uh, Sabuti, who was leading the retreat, and several of the older members said, look, can't we have silence? He said, no, I'm not going to have silence. It's a complete waste of time. You tell people to have silence, they just carry on talking. They just don't, you know, they just don't get it. And this must be what it's like when you're trying to teach people. It's as though you're trying to get people to do things, come on time to meditations, you know, concentrate on the Dharma, but they ask sort of questions that are a bit irrelevant to what you're teaching. It's like, sometimes it feels like people are trying to drag you one way and you're dragging them the other way. Because you know where you're going to take them is so much better than where they are. Because they haven't been there, they don't know. So it's no wonder the Buddha, knowing what was going to happen really, decided not to teach. But fortunate for us, that's not the end of the story, of course. Um, He had a change of mind. And it's said that um, a couple of devas, or a deva um, in the form of, um, um, who who manifests in the form of someone called a Brahma, um, um, a teacher, Brahma Sahampati, appears to the Buddha and he pleads with him to teach the Dharma. And the Buddha's probably thinking, what's the point, what for? But then he sort of looks out over the world and it's said in the sutras, then I listened to the Brahma's pleading and out of compassion for beings I surveyed the world with the eye of the Buddha. I saw beings with little dust in their eyes and with much dust in their eyes, with keen faculties and with dull faculties, with good qualities and with bad qualities, easy to teach, hard to teach, and some who dwell in um, living with fear and blame, worrying about the future, worrying about what's called the other world. And he compared it, it said... Just as in a pond of blue or red or white lotuses, some lotuses that are born and grow in the water thrive immersed in the water without rising out of it. And some of those lotuses that are born and grow in the water and rest on the surface of the water. And some of those lotuses that are born and grow in the water rise out of the water and stand clear, unwetted by it, So too, surveying the world with the eye of a Buddha, I saw beings with little dust in their eyes, etc. And he repeats the the whole thing. So it's as though he saw that actually beings were already in a state of what you could say, call evolution, a sort of spiritual evolution. That some beings were just so immersed in the mud of their lives, they weren't even growing. They were just there as seeds or as bulbs, I guess, what is a lotus? It's roots just there and nothing's happening. And there are other people who are just beginning to ask questions about what life is and uh, making a difference. And then there are others who are more committed to making a change, to really growing up towards, let's say, the light, the light of enlightenment. And apparently there are those that are completely free of the water, completely free of all the attachments, all the things, the worldly things that most of us are attached to, and they stand clear of the world, yet they still have their roots in it, so they haven't left the world, but they're just free of it. And probably that's why we're all here. We're lotuses, or like lotuses, um, just beginning to grow. That um, if you... um, 
I mean, if you were just dragged here by someone because you didn't really want to come, and uh, but you know it was somewhere to go and hang out for the evening, well, maybe you're just happy lying there in the warm, you know, sort of mud of existence. You know, you're quite happy. You don't have to do anything. Just rest. Take it easy. But uh, for other people, this isn't very comfortable. We just begin to think it's dark, it's dirty, things keep going wrong. And you have a sense that there's something brighter, lighter, more wonderful that you can experience. And it's probably why you're, you're all here. You're all lotuses rising up out of the um, worldly slime mud, moving, being attracted, being drawn up towards the light. And uh, we don't know who's higher or who's lower. Uh, it's not very modern to talk about unequality, is it? Everyone's equal. But the spiritual life, it's not like that. It's that some people actually are developed more than others. So you actually get an evolution, if you like. The Buddha saw this, and it completely changed his mind. And he decided that he could teach. He could at least teach some people. He could find those whose eyes were covered with little dust. And um, he then sets out... um, to teach beings. And this is something you may experience um, yourselves. If you hear something that's really wonderful, really exciting, what do you want to do? You want to go share it with people, don't you? But uh, have you ever had that experience where you've, you've come across something really meaningful to you? Like it could be a dream, for instance, or an experience you had. It could be an experience of beauty or something. And you tell people, and they go, oh, yeah, yeah, I had a dream like that as well. And you think, why am I doing this? And and you can understand that, uh, you know, it's difficult. But you do meet people who go, wow, that is amazing. That's truly amazing. And then you can explore it together. And um, I guess this is what the Buddha did. He he had to go and find someone. He didn't have anyone. He was all alone in this grove. So he, he had to wander off. He bumps into a merchant. And the merchant sort of, you know, a bit shocked because there's this Buddha who looks um, very radiant. Now, some of you may never have seen this, right? But if you perceive people who've been on a retreat, when they come back, their eyes are shining, usually. They look very bright. I mean, obviously, if you don't really look at people, you won't see it. But if you, um, you know, your friend walks through the door and says, oh, hi, do you want a cup of tea? And don't look at them, you won't see it. But if you sort of go look at them, say, oh, you've been on retreat, and you take them in, you sometimes see a sort of glow. So, so they're suddenly opened up like a lotus, and their full beauty is shining through. This happens again and again. Um, I lived at a retreat centre that was called Padmaloka, which means the world of the lotuses, because when people go on retreat, they open up like lotuses. So if you want to open up like lotuses, get on retreat. That's the, probably the best place to do it. The Buddha gained enlightenment. So imagine what he looked like. It must have been like big searchlights, laser lights shining out of his head lighting up the world around him this mendicant walking through the merchant walking through the forest and uh, bumps into the Buddha and the Buddha, he says, wow, who are you? and he says, I'm the Buddha and he goes on to explain what he, he means by that and uh, the merchant says, oh right okay then, well fair enough, goodbye and he goes off and he kept looking back and it's said that he looks back with regret But he wasn't ready to listen to the Buddha, to take in what the Buddha had to say. 
And sometimes it's like that for us. We sort of hear something, and it's too frightening. We don't want to know that, do we? Because it might change our life. And uh, that's one of the things about Buddhism. It should come with the health warning. That's one of my old jokes, Frank. Uh, <coughs> it will change you. So if you don't want to be changed, don't practice. But if you want to change, it will change you. The Buddha then thinks, I know, I'll go and find my old meditation teachers because they, they must be close to realising. So that thought comes into his mind. But another deva, another god, appears and said, sorry, they're dead. They died just recently. And the bizarre, it's a shame. Who else can I teach? So then he remembers the five ascetics that um, he was practising with. So he decides to go off and find them. Now, he goes all the way to a place called Kasi, or um, I think it's um, later became Benares or Vanasi. And it's quite a long way. I looked on the map. It's quite a long way from um, Budgaya. I would guess 100, 150 miles through jungle. And the Buddha, anyway, wanders you know, off to, to meet, uh, try to find these um, ascetics. And they must have been sort of bits stick in the muds because... He, did, he found them. And, uh, but they saw him coming at a distance and they said, look, there's the one who gave up austerities, who took up luxury. He started eating. And uh, let's ignore him. And let's not honour him in any way. Because they did before. They really honoured him as the one who practised austerities more strongly than anyone else, practised harder than anyone else. But as the Buddha came closer, they found them. they just weren't able to to keep to their, um, to keep to this idea, and so they had to welcome the Buddha. It's sort of, you know, it's one of those moments where you, you decide something rationally, but actually you just can't do it because this person's presence is just so big and powerful. You just find yourself automatically offering them a seat, washing their feet, making sure they're comfortable, and that's what they did. But they're very sceptical. Um, Something we might have in quite a lot in common with these sort of people, you know, because we tend to be rather sceptically critical these days. And, uh, you know, it's very easy to sort of say, well, who's he to talk about all of this? You know, and you can get very critical of people. So you might remember the first people where you ever find yourself in that sort of mood. Anyway, the Buddha was very, very patient, very kind, and he found a way to teach them. And what he teaches them is the middle way. He teaches them that um, there's a middle way between torturing yourself, sort of really pushing yourself, trying to give up all the pleasures in life, and um, completely being absorbed by all the pleasures in life. This is what is often called the middle way, the middle way between two extremes of of how to live, of practising. You give up milk... You start drinking soy milk, you hate it, but you know you keep drinking it because it's a real austerity. And then one day you start to like it, and then it's okay. Then you try and find something else to give up, you know, and sort of go on that. That's not what the Buddha was talking about, actually. The Buddha was talking about the sort of people that just starve themselves. Some people pretend they were dogs, and they'd go around eating things dogs eat, and um, (laughs) try to gain enlightenment because they just wanted to give up any attachment to pleasure. And he said, this is the wrong way. You, you just don't have the resources, if you don't eat, to practice. You're too weak. Your mind is confused because of your weakness. You're in a sort of stupor, um, so tired from it all. But conversely, if you just want to be happy 
and you're always fiddling with life trying to bring together all the things that are going to make you happy, then you just live your life almost in the direct opposite of the ascetics. You just become hedonists. You're just looking for things to give you sense pleasures all the time. And um, that makes it very, very difficult to even understand the Buddha, even find time to listen to the Buddha, because, you know, it's much more important being on Facebook and doing all the other things that we can... Not that I you know, want to be critical of Facebook, but, um, you know, it's just... I'd like to be a bit critical of modern life, I guess. And for me, Facebook, since I just deactivated myself, um, <coughs> is, um, represents all those things we try to, all those things we do, believing it's going to give us happiness. So he says, well, there's a middle way. It's not that you need to give up everything, so it's good to be on Facebook, keep you know, your social life going, talk to your friends and family and things. Don't just ignore everyone. But at the same time, you could start doing other things that start to narrow down your life a little bit, simplify your life a little bit, make your life more intense, and you can practice. So this is what the Buddha taught them. One of his disciples, Kadanya, got it. He knew what the Buddha was talking about, and he suddenly says, Oh, I see. And um, he actually, the Buddha's middle way isn't just about extremes. It's not like not doing too much of one and too little of the other. It's, um, it's, it's something, it's more like being in a state that's over and above those two extremes. And what Kadanya sees, he sees that whatever is subject to becoming, it's also subject to cessation. So like with my friend, um, Sudarshan, whatever becomes will cease. And uh, this is something we have to remember again and again, not just at times when it's in our face um, and so on. And it's when the Buddha taught these people, we find um, this term comes into the Buddhist language of the Buddha sets in motion or starts turning the wheel of the Dharma. The Dharma is often compared to a wheel and he starts teaching them. He taught them the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path. And um, later on, one of the uh, images of the Wheel of Life became a, um, a spoked, eight-spoked wheel, which represented the, um, these things, the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. So he set a revolution. He set a turning around of the Dharma. And his teachings continue to spread and spread throughout India, throughout northern India at least, to begin with. Uh, Later on, it spread throughout the whole of Asia, and um, in the last 20, 30, 40 years, it's been spreading to the west um, as well. So this is what happened at the um, time of the Buddha. He started teaching... He set in motion this wheel, and this wheel has been revolving and turning, and um, the teachings of the Buddha have been available to us all. Now, one of the things about wheels is when you turn them, they often stop if you don't keep turning them. Now, if you have a wheel, imagine we placed you know, on this pillar here, a spindle and we had a wagon wheel and I gave it a little spin I mean this is what people are doing down the road in the casino aren't they, they're spinning the wheel 
dropping a ball in. Anyway, the wheel goes round and it stops eventually. Or in this case, I mean, you want it to stop if you're playing roulette, I guess, but um, in this case, the wheel of the Dharma is revolving and every now and again, someone needs to come up to it and just stroke it and give it another sort of turn. And things just go on. And throughout history, people have been turning the wheel of the Dharma. Sometimes the wheel slows right down and it almost stops. It's as though Buddhism is just beginning to completely disappear, which is what happened in India eventually. When there was the great invasion of Muslims into India, the whole of the Buddhist Dharma was more or less wiped out. Um, But before that, Buddhism had, in different places, its ups and downs. But it seemed to have been a bit of a golden time after the Buddha. Buddhism spread quite quickly um, through India. Now, in preparing this talk, I had to do a bit of research because I realised there's a great big gap in, great big gaps in my knowledge about India and about history. Um, I knew who I wanted to talk about, but I didn't know the context in which they existed. So I had to look it up. Now what I do know is at the end of the Buddha's life, India was going through a number of changes. It, was, it started off at the, uh, um, early on in the Buddha's life as lots of very small kingdoms, but by the end of his 80 years, these kingdoms were being gradually conquered and gathered together into um, um, a sort of small empires. And there's a famous one about a story about the Coastlands and the Magadan. The Coastlands ask how they could stop the Magadans soaking them up. And the Buddha tells them what will happen to them. He doesn't tell them how not to be soaked up, but he tells them why, what causes will come about that they will get soaked up. They get soaked up. And um, gradually, over the next... Um, the Buddha, um, I think the time of the Buddha is about um, two, 500 years before the Common Era, and um, a few hundred years after that, you get this great invasion coming in from the west. You get Alexander the Great moving his armies right across Persia, Afghanistan, and pouring into western India and gradually infiltrating India. Um, but there was already an empire growing that started in Bengal, modern-day Bihar, and was gradually Um, developing and this was an empire called the Maurya Empire um, which was founded in 322 BCE by Chandragupta Maurya that's how you pronounce it Maurya and uh, he had his centre, his capital at modern day Patna and some um, generations later there was this great being, great person who came into being, a great um, emperor called Ashoka. And it was Ashoka who set turning or spinning even faster the wheel of the Dharma. Um, this is what um, Richard Gombridge, a uh, academic, says of Ashoka. He says, The most important Buddhist layman in history has been the Emperor Ashoka, who ruled most of India for the middle third of the third century before the Common Era. 
Um, on the capitals of one of the pillars that Ashoka erected, there's a beautifully carved wheel that has many spokes. This represents the wheel of the Dharma, which the Buddha set in motion as the symbol and was the symbol that was chosen for the flag of the modern state of India. The Sangha grows and diversifies and spreads across northern India. Ashoka, he was a conquering ruler. He had a big army, and um, the first part of his life, like all other conquerors, he um, started war and started conquering people. And he managed to expand the emperor, empire more or less over the whole of central India, right the way down to, almost down to, um, um, not as far as Sri Lanka, but certainly right down towards that uh, tip, towards the tip of India. Um, it's not quite clear, apparently, when Ashoka lived. It's somewhere between, uh, one, one scholar puts it, it's 268 to 239 before the Common Era. I have to get my head around this, because you have to remember the numbers go backwards before the Common Era, because they go to zero, and then they go up again. So, uh, just in case you're as stupid as I am, you're sort of wondering why I said those numbers around that way. Um, but what Ashoka did, he left his mark... And his mark can still be seen in India, all over the place. I was going to do a PowerPoint today, but it all got a bit complicated. And one of the maps I found was this chain of pillars and rock faces that he had carved that spread right the way round India and right across it. There are thousands of them, it seems. He had these edicts carved into stones. He set up pillars and uh, he disseminated all over the place the word of the Buddha. And um, Ashoka was remarkable for a number of reasons. Firstly, because of these pillars. It was the first time that the Dharma had been disseminated and these records were um, left recording. But at some point during his life, quite early on, after a very sac- in fact, even after a successful campaign, he um, had a big change of heart. He suddenly realised all the suffering that he was causing by making war on all the other states. So he decided that he was going to stop being a warlord and just rule justly. He publicly declared his morose and and, um, all the regret he had for all the suffering he'd caused in the wars. And he said, henceforth, he's only going to conquer people by righteousness by Dharma. And it seems as though he had a remarkable um, conversion. He becomes a Buddhist. That wasn't the only religion that one could choose at that time, but he decides that's what he wants to do. He becomes a Buddhist. He says for the first year of being a Buddhist, he didn't really do very much, didn't really understand very much, and it took him a year to you know, get to meet monks and people who then taught him. But after that, he made much progress in the Sangha. And although all the pillars and edicts that he had carved are not totally the Buddha's message, they are his understanding of righteousness, of what it means to be right, to treat human beings respectfully, um, what is the way to live. And the sort of things that he did, he abolished the death penalty, which was amazing at that time. He just completely abolished capital punishment. 
from you know in his day there was no more beheadings or whatever it was that happened he had wells dug everywhere he planted trees along the roads because in india it's very very hot and you know those days if you've been out on those days when it's been very hot here and you walk down the road and there's no shade it's really unpleasant well you take the temperature up from 30 33 degrees up to 40 degrees i got a message last week from uh, a friend of mine spooty in india who said it was 47 degrees just before the rain started so you can imagine or maybe can't imagine what it's like to be walking down the road he planted trees to give shade so that people could travel in more comfort without dying of the heat he used to go for pleasure on hunting expeditions but then he discovered it was actually much more pleasure in um, going on Dharma expeditions. So he went looking for monks and teachings, and he used to really enjoy that. He found tremendous pleasure in that. He went on pilgrimages. He did about 11 pilgrimages. He did 11 major tours, I think, in part of the pilgrimages around India. And um, although other kings had officials, he had Dharma officials. He had officials actually whose job it was to teach the Dharma. So, you know, it's be, people like me would be state employed if we were a Dharma country. And, uh, you know, you could, don't know how good that would be, probably be a terrible thing. But um. anyway, the Buddha gives a, um, in a description of an ideal human being in the, <coughs> in the scriptures. And Ashoka fits this perfectly. He is a remarkable man. He seems to have been untiring in his efforts. And he was a, a tremendous inspiration to other kings that followed him. (coughs) Perhaps the most important thing that he did, although there is some debate about whether he did it directly or it was because of his influence, he sent missionaries out across the known world. So in all likelihood, Buddhism would have reached the West, certainly um, Persia, probably as far as Greece, um, in ancient Greece, and there's also the possibility that you know, things like Christianity are influenced by the Buddha's teachings because this was all happening a couple of hundred years before the birth of um, persons called Christ. Ashoka, in Buddhist tradition, had an influence on the whole of world history. His um, being, his turning of the wheel of the Dharma, has affected people right down to the present day. Even in modern India, people try, or in in Asia rather, people try, some people, those who want to practice righteousness and uh, give righteousness to their people, look to Ashoka as an example of how you could behave as a um, a ruler, um, as a leader of a country. In modern times, people like Anagarika Dharmapada, who was um, someone called, his, his name means defender of the faith, he was someone who fought for Buddhism in India um, and helped to revive Buddhism in India. So Buddhism continues in India after Ashoka, and with becoming, you get cessation, and this is what happened to Buddhism in India. It ceased to be. It disappeared. It com- virtually disappeared. It reached an incredible high point with universities everywhere, millions of monks, probably hundreds of thousands of monks, which was a large number in a population 
that time. Um, amazing libraries. Um, there's one library called Nalanda that the um, Muslims destroyed. I can't remember the figures now, but it took months, I think, for the library to be burnt because there were just so many texts in it. So Buddhism reaches this high point in its history, and then afterwards it just ceases to be, disappears. And at the beginning of the last century, there is no Buddhism in India. There's Buddhism in Burma, in um, Thailand, in Sri Lanka, but not in India, and of course in Tibet and China. Dharmapala, he comes from Sri Lanka, and he tries to revive Buddhism in India. But Buddhism has recently been um, revived in India by another great man. And this is the teacher or the leader of the people from which Sudarshan comes from, the Dalits. And this is a photograph here at the end here on the shrine of someone who looks pretty unremarkable, just a middle-aged man, um, elderly man, glasses, a suit, shirt and tie. And uh, you would think, well, he's very special. But in India, the followers of Dr. Ambedkar, sometimes called Ambedkarites, usually most of them, many of them are Buddhists, not all of them, but they see Dr. Ambedkar, if they're Buddhist, as a bodhisattva. They see him as someone who really turned the wheel of the Dharma. And I would say that in, in India... Buddhism is coming back. It's coming back in a pretty big way because there are millions and millions of Dalits or ex-Dalits, people that have become followers of Dr. Ambedkar, people that have given up Hinduism and some of them, they haven't given it up to anything. They're just sort of floating there without religion and there are others that have converted to Buddhism. Dr. Ambedkar is a remarkable man when you look at the photograph and when you read a sort of um, praise of his life, you think, oh, yeah, he's pretty good. But uh, when you start to research him and uh, study him, you just think, wow, are they really human beings like that? Can they really do that? So I've got this off of um, Wikipedia because I just wanted a praise <laughs> I don't know how accurate it is because you can never quite trust Wikipedia. You only have to look at the FWBO um, definitions to know that you know, some pretty wacky things on it. But um, I know that he was born in 1981, on the 14th of uh, April, and he died in 1956. He was an Indian national. He was a jurist. He came from the um, caste, or what was later the people that were called Dalits. He was a political leader, an activist. He was a philosopher. He was a thinker. He was an anthropologist. He was an historian, an orator a prolific writer and an economist. Um, and he was the chief architect of modern India's um, constitution. So that's pretty amazing for someone who wasn't even allowed in the school building. He had to sit outside to study because he was an untouchable, come from that background. Fortunately, the British, having done many very, very bad things in India, did one or two good things. And the one good thing they did was they didn't recognise caste. So they let anyone join the army. And his father was in the army. And uh, the, there was um, certain privileges to being in the British army. And so um, his sons um, benefited, particularly 
um, Dr. Ambedkar. He's one of these individuals that's unstoppable. You know how you, we all fight for rights and, you know, it's unfair if you're not allowed to go to the, you know, the best university like Oxford and Cambridge and uh, etc. And, you know, you have all people fighting for rights. And um, the, the, the untouchable is what Dr. Ambedkar, he's fought for lots of rights, but he's one of these people that nothing would stop him. Nothing at all. Just completely unstoppable. And if you think of everything that was against him when he started out in life, you would have just said, no way is he ever going to be up there writing the Indian Constitution. Um, it would be unthinkable. But he did. He was like one of these forces that just keeps going. And his life wasn't a happy one. Um, he had some pretty big run-ins. He had a big run-in with Gandhi. Um, Gandhi, I have to tell you, it was a bit of a shock for me, this, but he's not liked by Indian Buddhists. He's not liked by the untouchables. Gandhi treated the untouchables, he called them children. And that's how, they, that's how um, that's their message from Gandhi. And Gandhi, although he's known for um, being a you know, um, pacifist or using peaceful means to um, make changes, he used peaceful means in one case forcefully. He threatened to um, starve himself t- to death if the untouchables were given um, voting powers in a, in a certain way. They were given voting powers, but Dr. Ambedkar wanted it in a particular way. And Gandhi said, no way. If they get it, I'm going to starve myself to death. So he starts starving himself to death. And um, Ambedkar, he knew that there would be a bloodbath if um, Gandhi had starved himself to death because of the, um, the untouchable people. So he had to give up and let Gandhi get his own way. So when you start studying history, you start making all these interesting um, discoveries, and things aren't always quiet as they seem. And sometimes you even lose your heroes, and you see them in a different light. So Dr. Ambedkar... Um, He makes much progress, but he realises the only way anything's going to change for his people in India is to leave Hinduism. Hinduism has this awful system, the caste system, which Ambedkar compares to things like uh, uh, apartheid. It's where certain people are allowed to, in certain places, and others, just because of their birth, the colour of their skin, aren't. And um, the untouchables weren't allowed into temples, into Hindu temples. They weren't allowed to take water from certain tanks where they get their drinking water from. They were always forced to do the dirtiest jobs. They had no education. So it was really... It made apartheid, I guess, look pretty good, you know, if you see what was happening to the untouchables in history. Um, It was an absolutely diabolical system. And this is what um, Ambedkar said. He had to free his people from this diabolical system of Hinduism, the caste system. Um, Modern Indians often say there isn't a caste system in India anymore. But you go and talk to people from that background and they will tell you otherwise. They will say it's practised on them all the time. It's um, probably in England now, it's difficult to know whether we've got a class system. But certainly when I was born 60 years ago, um, in a very low working class background, I was very aware of a class system, whereas middle class people didn't seem to have a clue that there was a class system, I think. <clears throat> anyway, Ambedkar um, fights for his people, and he decides the only way out of this 
problem was to convert to another religion. He could have converted to Islam, but imagine what would have happened if he had converted to Islam. He would have taken millions and millions of his followers who hated Hindus for what they'd done to them, probably, or would have been taught to hate Hindus in the same way that the hatred that grew after, the, uh, in, after independence with partition um, when Pakistan was formed and India was formed. It would have been a complete bloodbath. I don't know whether Ambedkar saw this, but for various reasons he decides the only religion to convert to is to Buddhism. So he converted to Buddhism. Um, he converts um, in Nagpur in, um, in 1956. He has a public ceremony on the 14th of October. He takes the three refuges and recites the five precepts from a Buddhist monk. He then converts an estimated half a million people um, to Buddhism, more or less at the same time. So suddenly, this whole movement takes place. Hambedkar takes 22 vows, and most of these vows, and most of his supporters take these vows, explicitly condemn and reject Hinduism and Hindu philosophy. They also have a number of vows which are very positive as well, things that, nice things they're going to do. But vows like, I, I vow to condemn the existence of God. There is no God. Things like that, putting it simply. Dr. Graham Bedker is a prolific writer. He even writes a book on the Dharma. It's called The Buddha and His Dharma. And um, as I say, he, he, um, later on he... Um, um, compares apartheid, um, compares um, the, the untouchability that was practised on his people to apartheid and even anti-Semitism. Okay, so that was another turner of the wheel of the Dharma. Before Dr. Ambedkar converted, he met another Buddhist monk called Sangharakshita, who, of course, is the founder of our own movement. Sangharakshita had a total of three meetings with Dr. Ambedkar. And I think Dr. Ambedkar, according to um, Bhante Sangharakshita's work, um, Ambedkar and Buddhism, he asked um, Sangharakshita to be the person that uh, performed the ceremony of conversion. But Bhante rather intelligently thought it would be better to get a, a more senior monk, he was a very junior monk at that time, to, to perform that uh, um, particular act. Dr. Ambedkar unfortunately died almost immediately after the conversion. So these people, all these thousands, hundreds of thousands of people, were left leaderless. They just had so much hope um, for, um, for the, from this man. So his, his whole movement was left, his own will would start turning, but was very quickly losing momentum. Sangharakshita gave... I can't remember how many lectures, um, it's what happens when you get older. Um, he gave sometimes three or four lectures a day all around Nagpur um, to all the followers that he could find of Dr. Ambedkar to help them overcome their grief at losing their leader and not to lose faith in, the, in Buddhism. Sangharakshita was born in London in 1925, for those who don't know. He discovered he was a, Buddhism when, he was a Buddhist when he was 16, he joined the army. I don't, think not, I don't think he joined the army voluntarily, but he was conscripted into the army. Fortunately, the Second World War 
more or less ended when he joined the army. And he was sent out to India. And uh, I think um, he would have got demobbed and brought back to England pretty quick. But he decided, uh, I think technically deserted. He jumped ship, decided to stay in India. He thought, well, I don't think it take me back to England, demob me, so I'll just stay here. So he, uh, he went um, AWOL and stayed in India for 20 years. And I'm pretty sure it wasn't because he was frightened of getting prosecuted. He was very inspired by the Buddha and he followed in the Buddha's footsteps. He tried to live like the Buddha. He burnt his passport, tore up all his identity documents, got rid of all his clothes, got some rags, wandered around India from one side to the other, um, from probably up to Cal- from probably Bombay to Calcutta. I can't remember. It's all in his, uh, in his memoirs. And he just practiced begging for his food, lived without money. That was his idea. So he's a very idealistic young man. And uh, he did this for quite a while. He then decides to become a monk, a Buddhist monk, and uh, he gets um, ordained as a Buddhist monk, and he continues to work for the good of Buddhism in India. His, his preceptor tells him to go and uh, live somewhere, suggests Kalingpong, and uh, work for the good of the Dharma, for the good of Buddhism. So he moves up to the Himalayas, and um, on the border of Nepal, and he lives there at a time when all the Tibetans are pouring out, all the Tibetan lamas are pouring out of Tibet. So he met a lot of the lamas who were leaving Tibet after the Chinese invasion. Um, to cut a long story short, because he's getting on, he um, gets invited back to England by some Buddhists, and uh, they want him to be the incumbent monk at a place called the Hampstead Buddhist Vihara in North London. He goes there, decides, OK, could do that, goes back to India, stays, he does some teaching. And he must have made himself very unpopular because he goes back to India to wind up his affairs, gets a letter from the judge, Christmas Humphreys, who tells him, don't come back, you're not wanted. <coughs> so not being uh, the sort of person that's stopped by even high court judges, he says, OK, what this means is a new Buddhist movement. So he comes back and he founds the Friends of the Western Buddhist Order, and a year later, he does the first ordinations into the Western Buddhist Order. And that was in 1967 and 68, and now we're in 2009. So that was the beginning of um, the Western Buddhist Order. I joined the Western Buddhist Order in... uh, I was ordained into it in 1974, and uh, a year before me, um, my brother-in-law was ordained into it, I suppose he's Mike's brother-in-law now, um, since I'm not married to his sister. Um, but uh, he was ordained into it, and his name was Lokamitra. Lokamitra and I both took up yoga um, when, in our early 20s, and um, we, you know, we, we were quite good yogis, actually. I mean, we, we benefited from being highly competitive males. Um, he was more competitive than me because I'm a bit of an aimless sort of character so I couldn't be bothered after the time but every now and again I'd see if I could do a headstand longer than him I think he managed something like an hour uh, he did a fundraising headstand once for an hour I thought well I could do it for 40 minutes but I'm not going to do it for an hour anyway he goes to India decides to go to India to have lessons with the yoga teacher Mr Iyengar and um, this is how cunning Sangha Akshita was he probably didn't realise he was cunning but he just thought and I don't think you can call him cunning, actually, because he just sees opportunities and takes them rather than plans them in advance, I think. 
Anyway, Lokomich says, Banti, I want to go to India to have some lessons with Mr. Iyengar. Is that all right? Because that's what we used to do in those days. We used to ask our preceptors if we could go to other teachers. And Banti says, yeah, that'd be fine. You go out there. Oh, by the way, when you're out there, could you look up some of my old mates? And uh, some of the people used to translate for me and these other you know, people in Buddhist. People like, uh, I don't know if Sudarshan was one of these, but uh, there are other people of that generation Probably Sudarshan's a bit young because he's, he was 63 when he died. Um, so Lokamitra in 1979 goes to India, uh, maybe a few years before that, and uh, does his yoga teaching, meets some Buddhists there. They say, oh, Lokamitra, could you give a few talks, you know, do a few programs? So he said, oh, okay, I could do that. So um, I think at the time Lokamitra was wondering whether to go to Cheltenham or Gloucester to set up a, a Buddhist centre, but uh, he, he wasn't sure, so he thought go to Pune and do some yoga for a little while, just a few weeks. Anyway, when he was there, he was doing his programmes, probably to hundreds of people, and he thought, wow, this is a bit better than Colchester or uh, um, Colchester or what's that other town there? Gloucester. Colchester. No. Chelmsford. No. Anyway, those towns down there. (laughs) Um, It's not at all important. Um, He goes back to India and uh, gives some more talks. And then Banti says, oh, it'd be really good if um, some Dharmacharis went to India and taught the Dharma. It'd be really good. And um, it'd be good if they went in robes. So um, Lokamitra and Padmavadra, no, Purna, become Anagarikas. And they go off to, to India and shortly joined by Padmavadra. And um, they start doing these programs. Buddhism spreads very, very quickly in the state of Maharashtra. And it goes on and on and on spreading till this day. So you have a whole number of turners of the wheel of the Dharma. If Sangharakshita hadn't founded the, this movement, there probably wouldn't be Buddhism in India today, except with the Tibetans, with the Burmese, the Taiwanese, etc. There probably wouldn't be. Um, there may be, because Ambedkar did start something. But um, certainly the um, FWBL, or TBMSG as it's known in India, has played its part in really spreading the Dharma in India. Sudarshan is one of those turners of the wheel. And he, like many of the Indian order members, are just remarkable people. They don't, they're just, they're like the King Ashoka, who gets pleasure in going on expeditions to teach the Dharma, to give the Dharma to people. They don't just think, oh, I'm a bit stressed today, you know, I need my sleep, you know. They don't sleep. I don't know where they get their sleep. They seem to not sleep, these people. They, um, you know, if you're with Sudarshan, he's always up before you go to bed. And then you meet him in the morning and you say, oh, what you be? Oh, I was down the temple meditating at five. And uh, um, actually, that's a good technique in India because it's cool. But, uh, you know, you, you wonder when... I asked him once, how much sleep do you get? And he said, oh, you know, usual amount. And he didn't seem to make uh, a big deal of it. I think Indians don't have a concept of a bad night's sleep. They just lie down for a few hours and sleep, and then they, they get up and carry on. So, you know, we have to get our eight hours or we get anxious and, you know, have to go and see therapists because we're so tired and things. But this is a bit different in India. So, here we are today. There's the wheel of the Dharma turning. We have a big Buddhist centre. It's going. Sometimes I wonder, I'm one of the trustees here, I don't quite know how it manages to keep going. I, one of the things the trustees, don't worry, it's not going to be a big dharma, dharma appeal, but one of the things that the trustees have to deal with 
is the lack of money. It costs a lot of money to keep this building running. I think someone worked out it was about £500 a day um, just to pay the, the ongoing cost. That's without having to paint the windows outside and things, just the ongoing cost. It's an incredible amount of money. And the, a few years ago, we were losing a lot of money every year, just we had some resources. And uh, there was, to be completely frank, there, was times, there were times when the trustees thought, maybe we need a smaller Buddhist centre uh, in the suburb somewhere, because you know, if we sold this building, it's worth a lot of money. We could buy a, little, you know, a couple of little buildings with it, and we wouldn't have all these running costs. But uh, <clears throat> we all love this building, and uh, we don't want to give it up. We know other people love it. And uh, we all care about it. And for some mysterious, in some mysterious way, we keep it going. And uh, it's, it's mainly due to the generosity of people that come to the centre, people like yourselves, giving money in form of gifts and so on, regular donations to the centre that allows us to keep it going. So the last thing I want to talk about in my talk is who is next turning the wheel of the Dharma? Well, it's obvious, really, isn't it? It's us. We are the great Buddhists. We are those whose um, actions will have an influence in the future. What we do today will have a tremendous influence in the future. This Buddhist centre is a very good example of things arising where they should never have arisen. When you see this, this centre, when it was first bought, you see photographs downstairs. Um, I didn't have this particular experience with this centre, although I was the president of the centre at that time. But I remember at the London Buddhist Centre, which was in the same sort of state, Sabuti showing it to me, and he said, what do you think? And I said, my goodness, I probably use a stronger expletive. Um, you're not thinking of buying that building, are you? You must be completely crazy. And I felt the same when I saw the inside of this building. But... I saw what they did with the London Buddhist Centre, so I knew that the impossible was possible. And uh, this building um, was turned into this fantastic facility, this fantastic resource, this temple to the Buddha, uh, Dharma and Sangha, by probably idiots. You know, if they had any sense, they wouldn't have done it. But the great thing was, they didn't know what they were doing. We didn't know what we were doing. We didn't realise that, you know, um, one day someone could make a film and say... The Buddhist centre was made completely out of recycled materials because we believe in environmental issues. The fact this room has a maple floor is because that was the only floor we could afford. It came out of a school gym full of nails. Someone had that wonderful job of pulling several thousand nails out of this floor. They're not um, big boards, they're just strips with nails sticking out. That's how they, that's how they turned up. And this Buddhist centre shouldn't have arisen were the people that were, had the skills here. But they taught themselves, they taught themselves plumbing, electricity, of course, today, they wouldn't be allowed to. They'd have to go on courses and get certificates and you know, get everyone coming and checking everything. Probably wouldn't be allowed to do it. I don't know what we're going to do with the Buddhist centres in the future. Anyway, we've got this centre, and it seems sometimes impossible to keep running. But it's down to us. So what can we do? When I was in India... Sabuti gave a talk where he highlighted four principles that we could use as Buddhists to deepen our practice, to intensify our practice, and to help change the world. You imagine the world, what it would be like if people were mindful, if there was a moral revolution. This is what Dr. Ambedkar wanted. He wanted a moral 
revolution, a Dharma revolution. He wanted society to change, to get rid of the oppression of the caste system for people to be treated fairly. Imagine what our society would be like if people were mindful. We all cared about one another. It's lovely, isn't it, when you're driving and then someone lets you in. You know, and they just say, after you. you no, after you. I mean, you don't get that in India. It's sort of, you know, it's, you know, it's no wonder people get killed on the roads very easily. I'm surprising more people don't. Sabuti highlights four principles that would keep the wheel of the Dharma turning. He doesn't use this language, but this is what, these are his four principles. And I think they're principles that are easily remembered and easy to put into practice, and they will transform your life if you want it to be transformed. First principle, keep working on yourself. What does this mean? It means train yourself in the precepts. Make a deliberate effort to develop positive mental states. Every time you find yourself in a negative, moany, critical mental state, change it. Be generous. Care for other people. Be respectful of other people. Be quiet and still. Have a simple life. This is um, how you practice the precepts. Meditate. doesn't matter if you don't have much time. Even if you meditated 10 minutes a day, it would have a profound effect on you. 20 minutes will double that profound effect. It would be a two-fold profound effect. <laughs> 40 minutes would be sort of out-of-this-world effect if you did it every day. Sometimes we talk about these higher states of consciousness that we could get into. Most people don't know what you're talking about because they hardly ever experience them. That's because we don't work on ourselves. We don't practice the precepts. We don't narrow down our options. We just want as many choices as possible. You know, we want to buy the smartphone that can do so many wonderful things that if we're bored in a cafe, we can just sit there playing with the buttons, trying to figure out how it works, <laughs> if you're like me. You can read the Dharma. This is another way you can work on yourself. I'm sure many of you do. You go to study groups, you read the Dharma. Not just what people say about the Dharma, but read the Dharma itself. It's not difficult. It's not difficult what the Buddha said. He just says everything's changing. Everything's impermanent. Everything causes suffering if you're attached to things. You can reflect on that. You can just find a park bench now and again and just be in the present moment and reflect upon the park bench. Whether it is the park bench or the trees or people walking around, you can just think all these things come into being because of conditions. Someone looks after the park. Someone provides the park. Someone hasn't taken the park bench away and burnt it for firewood. All these conditions are there for you to be there on the park bench. You can work on yourself in this way. You can deeply reflect on things. You can do a little devotion every day. You don't have to do the sevenfold puja. I mean, that would take you at least 20 minutes. You can light a candle. You can do that just before you're going to meditate. You could recite the precepts. That's a devotional practice. You can recite the um, T-Rat Navanda, which is even more devotional. And you can do these little things. Take five minutes a day, just light a candle, meditate. Maybe have some flowers there on the shrine. It's a devotional act. Think of the Buddha. It's a devotional act. You probably think you're not devotional, but if you do these little things, you are devotional. I'm getting to sound like someone talking to Indians now. <laughs> this is how they talk in India. They get worked up. They become evangelists. And it's good sometimes to be like that, because you will change yourself. And what you'll get is something wonderful. You're just not getting it, are you? <laughs> so that's how you can work on yourself. You can narrow things down and keep the light of the flame that you've got from 
talks that are given here, practices that you do here, you get these little flames just beginning to burn. But the world comes along like a damp blanket, a damp squid, and it just disappears. Go on retreats. That's another way of working on yourself. Come back with your eyes glittering. Because other people will think, wow, what happened to you? And you say, I went on retreat. Manchester seems to have a very, very bad reputation for running retreats. You know, because the last retreat we had here, I think nine people went on it. Um, I, don't know, I don't think there's anything to do with the people leading it. It might be because it was five days long, and that was a bit demanding. But um, when I was young, I used to go on retreats all the time. They were fantastic. You used to come off retreat thinking, wow, I'm going to live my life really differently. Now I'm going to be a vegetarian. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to just change the world. And then after a few weeks, of course, you know, you, you drop it and you forget about it. The worst thing is you forget about retreats, so you don't go on them again. But that's what you can do. You can try to remember to go on retreats. That's just the first thing you've got to do, right? Work on yourself. That's the most important thing, actually. The other three are sort of support this. So this is what you can do to turn the wheel of the Dharma. Secondly, the second principle is that you can build Sangha. You can form a Sangha. Now, I know some some of you might live a a distance from the Buddhist centre, and it might be a drag coming into the Buddhist centre. It might be a lot of bother coming to the Buddhist centre. You have to get a train. You have to pay for the fare. You have to travel. Well, that's all right. You can start a Sangha where you live. I remember someone going to Banti, saying to him, Banti, I'm thinking of moving into the country. What do you think of it? And he said, well, where will you find the people to teach? <laughs> and it hadn't quite entered this. It was an order member's mind. I don't know how it didn't enter in. I was probably one of the people that trained him, so probably the blame lies with me. I'm pretty sure I told him all these things, but you know, sometimes one forgets. And um, go to where people are. You've all got friends. You, know, you can start your own little sangha in your front room. You could start teaching people to meditate. You get CDs from downstairs if you don't feel confident doing it yourself. Just play them. You can get talks. You can play talks. But you can come to the centre as well. And you can build sangha here. And I, I know many of you are already doing that. You probably don't realise that's what you're doing, but you are doing it. You come to study groups. You talk about the Dharma. You're building sangha. But you can do that without people organising it for you. You can organise it for yourself. You don't need to be wait for others to organise things for you. You can build sangha wherever you are. Just come together, practice together. You know, this, this room is empty most of the time. We have this amazing resource. I mean, we do hire it out. But members of the sangha in this building, as far as I know, if you wanted to run a little group here, um, meditating, doing Buddhist activities you talk to the management team, they'll probably find a way in which you could do something here. I'm not suggesting that it's all advertised all over Manchester because someone would have to sort of check your credentials as a teacher. But, you know, if you just wanted to bring your friends together and come and meditate in the shrine room together, someone ringing a bell, maybe doing a little puja, that's the great thing to do. Do it. Study together. And talk about the importance of Buddhism, the effect it's having on your lives. You know, what happens when you meditate? Most people don't know because they sit there too busy thinking about other things. So if you have a little meditation group, you have a meditation buddy, who say, well, so what happened today then? You go, uh, uh, oh yeah, I remember now. Next time you meditate, you'll remember. And it'll probably re- remind you that actually you shouldn't be sitting there thinking, oh, sorry, shouldn't use the word should. You would um, perhaps be encouraged to be a bit more focused or just gather all your energy together, integrate it, and rise up into a higher state of being.
So forming Sangha, coming to events like this, as often as possible, is so important for the life of the Buddhist, for the turning of the wheel of the Dharma. And thirdly, and this is so obvious in India, but it could be translated in, you know, for what we do here. Share the Dharma. Teach the Dharma. Now, it's not that you have to set yourself up and give a le- public lecture, because I was terrified when someone suggested to me, when I was young, to give a talk. But I used to love talking to the, you know, I tried to talk to my mum and dad, and that was a bit like a lot of dust over their eyes, you know. But uh, my mum wasn't too bad. She was a spiritualist, but she kept translating it into other languages. And... Um, but, you know, you do meet people at work. Some people never tell their colleagues they're a Buddhist. Take the opportunity. You know, step up, as they say in the movies. <laughs> step up. Don't be down there. Step up, take a chance. Go forward. Talk about the Dharma. Tell people you're a Buddhist. And they say, what's a Buddhist? And tell them what you understand. You might get it wrong, it doesn't matter. They at least got some understanding. The great thing about teaching the Dharma is that you realise what you don't know. When you teach the Dharma, you realise what you don't know, but you also realise what you do know. The person that benefits most from teaching the Dharma, the person that's benefiting most today is me, because I've got the opportunity to talk for over an hour. No one's going to shut me up. And I had to research this talk. I had to think about it all day Sunday. It took me hours, you know, going through... I've got the internet now, but I've got the books out and I was reading through. I didn't need to do all that, but it just became so fascinating, learning, just learning about things. Teach the Dharma to your friends and colleagues and people that you know, and you will learn so much from doing that. And the last thing to do is completely different. Help people that are suffering. There is so much suffering in this world. It's unbelievable. Currently, I work for Breathworks, as probably many of you know. The reason I do that is because people are suffering. One in seven people in this country suffer from a chronic pain condition. One in seven people. Many people suffer from depression. Many people. Thousands, hundreds of thousands of people are in pain mentally or physically all the time. People are suffering. You don't you only have to walk down the street to see people. If you... Most of the time, when I walk down the street, I don't like to look because it's too painful. But if you just look around you at the people, even on sunny days, you see suffering. You see people trying to get away from suffering, often in the city centre, buying things. But you see suffering there. You see people begging, trying to sell you a big issue. Even if you don't want to buy one, you can at least look at them and say, no, thank you. They seem to appreciate that. They appreciate you buying one even more. There are so many ways in which you can help people who are suffering. Find a way. Do something, just a little thing each day to help people that are suffering. Even if you can't do it yourself, contribute to, to some good cause that is helping the suffering in the world. Does, you don't have to give all your money to the Buddhist centre. You can give some of it to causes where they're bringing fresh water to people without it. You can do your bit. But make it a practice. Make a practice of helping people, looking at suffering and seeing suffering there. Step up to that too. It's a great new term. Got it from the wire. <clears throat> That's how we turn the wheel of the Dharma. We can turn it in so many ways through our own practice, through building Sangha, from teaching, sharing with other people, partaking, allowing other people to partake of what it is we've got. 
and helping to alleviate in little ways suffering. Because if you're not a, um, a person that's practicing generosity and kindness, you can't call yourself a Buddhist. It's a contradiction in terms. So these are the ways in which we can start to make some very, very profound changes in our own life. And if we make them in our own lives, you don't need many individuals in this world, it seems, to make enormous changes. Now, we may not, probably none of us are, an Ashoka, a Dr. Ambedkar, a Sangharakshita, probably none of us are Sudarshins. But we are average, good-hearted people, human beings, and we're all capable of a lot more than we're doing at the moment, which isn't a criticism of what we're doing at the moment. It's just that our potential isn't being utilised. We're not bringing alive. It's as though we're a little bud, a little um, lotus that's just sort of getting up above the water, just poking its head above. It's tight. This life is like that sometimes. So so tight, hard. You can't get up in the morning. You can't meditate. Oh, no. Got to give some money away. Oh, no. But what would it be like if... Boom, you open. Wow, give it all away. Don't need to worry about anything anymore. Don't need insurance, don't need mortgages. Nothing, nothing to worry about. Life is just freedom then. So wouldn't that be wonderful? Now, to move from that tight little bud to that big lotus is, of course, very difficult. But doing things in this way, each of us trying to turn the wheel of the Dharma, following in the footsteps of the Buddha, Ashoka, um, Ambedka, Sangrakshita, Lokamitra, Sudarshin, other people around the centre, following the footsteps of all these people will transform our lives. So I hope you have a jolly good time turning the wheel of the Dharma. Sorry it's taken so long, but I enjoyed it. Thank you. (laughs)